I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, June 18th, 2013. Coming up, the author of a new book discusses China's impact on the global environment. And we learn about the 100-year Starship Project. Think long-term, beyond Mars, way beyond Mars. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. A gene that regulates fear in humans and animals may be involved in post-traumatic stress disorder, a new study suggests. The gene, OPRL1, expresses a receptor for a molecule called nociceptin. Researchers at Emory University and their colleagues found that the OPRL1 gene was dysregulated in a brain region called the amygdala, where the nisoceprin receptor is highly expressed. Traumatized individuals carrying altered versions of the OPRL1 gene have trouble distinguishing between safe environments and dangerous environments, which is a core symptom of PTSD. Also, individuals who have experienced trauma have more brain activation in areas related to fear and pain processing. Together, the findings suggest that OPRL1 regulates the fear response in both humans and animals. The researchers found that a drug targeting the receptor prevented the development of PTSD-like symptoms in mice. When injected directly into the amygdala of mice shortly after trauma exposure, the drug impaired the formation of fear memories in the animals. The findings pave way for the development of drugs that could be given to individuals shortly after exposure to trauma, like military combat or a car accident, to prevent the development of PTSD. The findings were published in the June 5th issue of the journal Science Translational Medicine. It's been known for some time that Antarctica's ice shelves are melting. Those are the thick floating platforms of ice where land glaciers extend seaward. It's also been known that these ice shelves melt at the border where the ice meets the ocean. For years, glacier experts have thought that the ice shelves lose most of their mass by sloughing off icebergs. But new research shows that Antarctica's ice shelves are actually melting at least as much from the bottom up. The findings show that ocean ice interactions play a central role in the mass balance of ice shelves, and that some ice shelves are changing rapidly due to warming oceans and rising sea levels. To get a sense of scale... These ice shelves cover some 580,000 square miles. The new study was led by Eric Rignot, a glacier expert at the University of California, Irvine, and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. The team used satellite observations and reconstructions of ice surface accumulation to survey all the existing Antarctic ice shelves. They figured out how fast the the shelves melt and break up in the ocean. Then they documented how the ice evolves and moves in ice shelves that float on the ocean. From these data, the team calculated how fast ice melts from the bottom of the ice shelves. The results could help scientists better understand the impact of ice shelves on the Southern Ocean and could aid further models of ice shelf and ice sheet mass balance. Global warming has already contributed to melting of of some parts of Antarctica. The new study, which was published last week in the journal Science, could have implications for how global warming continues to alter the bottom of the world. 
Fans of evolutionary biology, listen up. On this date, 155 years ago, in 1858, Charles Darwin received from Alfred Russell Wallace a paper that included conclusions about evolution that were nearly identical to Darwin's own. Seeing his colleague's paper prompted Darwin to scramble to publish his scientific theory of evolution stemming from natural selection. A year later, Darwin's seminal book, The Origin of Species, was published. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. If you've ever visited Beijing or other major cities in China, you'll know they hardly are ideal spots if you have asthma. Air pollution reaches record levels frequently, prompting warnings that school children and the elderly should stay indoors. China's meteoric economic rise clearly is causing harmful side effects, and they're not just felt domestically, but around the globe. A recently published book on the topic is called The Devouring Dragon, How China's Rise Threatens Our Natural World. It tackles some major environmental consequences of China's insatiable appetite for natural resources, such as timber, soy, and coal, including from here in Colorado, as well as for endangered animals. The author of the book, Craig Simons, is a former Asia correspondent for Cox Newspapers, and he joins us via Skype call from Beijing. Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks, Susan. I'm happy to be here. Great. Um, so... Maybe start, because uh, it seems China's meteoric rise has happened really since you started living there in the mid-90s. So just as a personal account, tell us a bit how you came to this topic and partly from your own observations as a Peace Corps volunteer way back when. Sure. Yeah, I moved to, to China first as a Peace Corps volunteer in 1996 and lived in a small city in Sichuan province for two years. I came back again in the early 2000s as a journalist uh, initially covering China and then living in Beijing, but covering the whole the Asia region, region for, for Cox newspapers, as you mentioned. Uh, and what I saw initially was the domestic environmental problems that, that we've all heard about. I mean, the terrible air and water pollution that, that China faces. Uh, and as I, you know, that's something that I learned to live with, just like many Chinese live with it. But as I began to report across Asia, I recognized that a lot of China's environmental impacts were, were spilling beyond its own borders. Um, so, for example, I was traveling in Indonesian Borneo and saw orangutans that had been orphaned when, when, uh, when timber was cleared, you know, when forests were cleared in an area that, that um, was related to, to Chinese demand. So as these sort of experiences accumulated, I, I realized that, that China had surpassed the United States and Europe in, in, their, in their global resource demand in most, most areas. Uh, and wanted to document how that change has happened and to fit China into that global, sort of longer global narrative um, to see how China has really raised the stakes of our, uh, our, you know, of our global environmental change and, and what we can expect to happen over the coming decades. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that you start the book, actually, in the small town in Colorado called Trinidad. So talk a little bit about that connection to uh, China. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I mean, one of the, I'm growing up in America. I wanted to in the United States. I wanted to um, to really draw a close connection to uh, to readers in the United States. Uh, and I and I looked for I mean, one of the things that China China now consumes something like half of the world's coal. 
Uh, and China has increasingly been importing U.S. coal, causing a lot of consternation among environmental groups. Of course, we've been weaning ourselves of coal in the U.S., uh, largely through the work of environmental organizations. Uh, a lot of very, very few coal-fired power plants are being built, if any at all, anymore. Um, right. we've, we've moved on to a different kind of energy portfolio. Um, at the same time, China's demand for coal has just skyrocketed with their energy demand. So a lot of that coal is now being exported. A lot of it comes from Australia and other places in, in Asia. But, um, but with, we, have, we have significant amounts of coal deposits in the United States. I, I struck on, I found this, this tiny community, and Trinidad, Colorado is actually quite an interesting community in that it was, uh, it was very wealthy in the, in the early 1900s. It was the first community in Colorado to build public schools. If you go to Trinidad, you can drive down the old Main Street. They have an old opera house. Uh, all of these places now, I and mean, most of them are, are actually boarded up and closed. But uh, 10 years ago, or a bit over 10 years ago now, uh, a, a, a mine called the New Elk Mine closed down, uh, and it was recently reopened. And it was reopened for export largely to Asia, some of it to China. It was hard to track down some of it. I wanted to show this, this connection in a very real way uh, for Americans in Trinidad, um, it, it really felt like China was, you know, this, this community was really being pulled into China's orbit. So it sounds kind of like what you describe in the book as the tragedy of the commons in that, yeah, we're weaning ourselves, for now anyway, off coal towards natural gas, allowing more for export, right? So China's going to be consuming that much more partly because of it, perhaps. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think one of the things I tried to do in the book is to, is to really fit China into the global narrative so, I mean, China is really hitting its economic stride at a time when, when we're now in the sixth great era of extinctions, the only time, the only era of extinctions that's been caused by mankind. You know, we're losing species at a, at a rate somewhere between 50 and 1,000 times the natural baseline. We've raised the temperature of the planet by over one degree Fahrenheit and probably locked in another degree Fahrenheit. And, and we've cleared probably half of the force that existed before mankind became the dominant force on the planet. Not a promising um, trajectory. So China is, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, China's really hitting its stride at a time when, when you know, the world is already quite degraded, and, and, you know, behind China we have India and everybody else. So that's what I was trying to show with the book, is that, you know, the stakes are higher than they've probably ever been. And, and we're moving, you know, we now have 7 billion people. We're moving towards probably 10 billion people by the end of the century. Uh, more of those people are going to be consuming at a, at a higher rate, more like what we live like in the United States. And, and how are we going to be able to think or are we going to be able to find a way to consume sustainably when there are so many more people uh, who want to live in the ways that we do? I mean, the title kind of suggests that China's really to blame. But wh what's your take on yeah, that? I mean, is it just the timing that China with, you know, how many billion people, it's inevitable? Or is there something really different about yeah, China? Yeah, I don't think blaming. Yeah. I don't think blaming China is helpful. Um, I don't think that China, China, of course, is different from the West, particularly in its cultural traditions, Confucian ideology, top-down. I mean, we now look at China as a one-party state um, with a lot of authority vested in the Communist Party and the governing leadership. Um, they don't have a lot of the bottom-up controls we're used to in the United States, or they, you know, they have, of course, they have independent, semi-independent media, and they do have courts of law. But they're not given the same kind of independence and freedoms that we're used to in the U.S. So those kinds of bottom-up controls and checks and balances on power don't, don't really exist in a way that we're used to in the U.S. So 
And China is a different political animal, if you will, from from the U.S. But I still don't think China is to blame. I, you know, I, you know, the average. I, I, one of the things I do in the book is I compare the average American with the average Chinese, in, in based on numbers we found in 2011. Uh, in 2011, just to just briefly to sketch it out, the average Chinese earned something like four thousand U.S. dollars. Per year, mm-hmm. the average American earned more than ten times that amount. The average Chinese used a fraction of the of the energy. Uh, we're talking eighteen percent of the electricity, ten percent of the oil, five percent of the natural gas. Uh, emitted less than a third of the carbon carbon dioxide, and and ate uh, half as much meat as the average American. So, if we think about you know our how how much can we blame Chinese for? Uh, for coming along at a time and wanting to be wanting to live health, you know, better material lives, um, I think I think it's difficult for for Westerners to look at China and expect them not to want the same kinds of material comforts we have. That said, you know, there's a lot that China could do, um, as many countries could do, to improve their own domestic environmental uh, situation and to improve, um, hopefully. The impact that they're they're having globally, as they, as in, in China's case, import increasing amounts of timber, incre- import increasing amounts of wildlife, uh, and emit increasing amounts of carbon, which are the, the three main areas I looked at in the book. Right. We just have um, a little less than a minute. Just want to ask, what was one of the more powerful experiences you had related to endangered species and looking at, at China's consumption? I know in the book you have this really colorful. Sort of suspenseful story about following the Bengal tiger in India, or that, or something else. Yeah, one of the things I wanted to do with the book is, yeah, yeah, I wanted I wanted to to use narratives to tell not just what we're losing, but but really what remains and what what's at stake. And and you know, I'm not like I say, it's not a, a question of blaming China. It's about thinking together as a global community about what we what we have left and what we need to do to save them. So. For the, the section on wildlife, I went to northern India to a place called Corbett National Park and, and looked at tiger poaching and the tiger trade. A lot of those tiger parks were being shipped across the Himalayas into China. Um, but I also was able to see two wild tigers, which was an incredible experience. And there are only something like 4,000 tigers left in the world. Hmm. So being able to see two of them in this, in this park was just an amazing experience. And you really can recognize when you have those kinds of experiences just what the stakes are. And, and why you know you can sense in your kind of in your bones why we should should do more as a global community to, to try to preserve what's left. Well, thank you. And there's so many tales like that in the book. So um, that was Craig Simons, author of The Devouring Dragon: How China's Rise Threatens Our Natural World. He's now with the U.S. State Department, actually in China. Craig, thanks so much for coming on How on Earth. Thank you very much. You are listening to How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. Science and exploration tend to be long-term commitments. That's well known by fans of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series, where a computer deep thought did calculations for seven and a half million years to find the answer to the ultimate question of life, universe, and everything. 
However, it is common that projects in our world tend to be limited by shorter-term political and funding cycles, so it's hard enough to consider projects that require thinking a decade into the future beyond many political lifetimes. What about projects that require thinking a century or more into the future, many generations from now? Well, that is exactly what one group of space exploration advocates is working toward. The project is called the 100-Year Starship, and the concept is just that, creating a long-duration mission sending humans to another star. To talk about that challenge and vision, we have Aliris Alman, member of the 100-Year Starship Project. Welcome to the show, Aliris. All right. Thank you, Joel. So let's start off. What is the 100-Year Starship Project? Well, the 100-Year Starship Project was started in um, from an idea from DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, in 2011. They had a symposium in Orlando, Florida. And as a result of that symposium, they put out an RFP for an organization to basically take the helm and manage this vision and mission for the next 100 years. And our team was the proposal team that won. And our team is led by Dr. Mae Jemison, who was the first woman of color in space. She's also a medical doctor, engineer. Um, and we have this team, and our goal and mission now is to enable all the capabilities required to make human interstellar spaceflight a reality within the next 100 years. So that that list has to be done. So this wasn't just a group of science fiction fans getting together. This was actually initiated by DARPA, yes. uh, competitively uh, proposed and selected. Exactly. So, and you have an astronaut on your board as well as a number of others. Right. She's our, um, Dr. Mae Jemison is our prime, and we have a network of scientists, um, astrophysicists, we have clothing designers, we have engineers, we have biomedical engineers, psychologists, sociologists, the whole gamut ready to put our minds into this mission and vision of making this a reality. So you're covering a broad swath there. So uh, the first thing we might think of is there are technological challenges. You're, the implication of the board is that there's more than that. But first, let's talk about just what are some of the technological challenges about the concept of a 100-year starship? Well, the first challenge is distance. Um, we're talking interstellar, not interplanetary, so we're going beyond our solar system. And that means going beyond what was uh, Pluto, not planet, but the, the dwarf planet Pluto. What used to be the last planet. <laughs> exactly. Um, and the nearest star is Alpha Centaurus, which is 4.2 light years away. And in order to get there, we would have to, if we built a brand new ship tomorrow or next year, traveling at the speed um, that we, uh, our current technologies take, it's about 17,000 miles an hour. Um, it would take 70,000 years. A bit of a wait. It is. And um, I always tell people, you know, the moon is a, you know, a weekend getaway. Mars <laughs> is nine months each way. You know, getting to Pluto, you know, looking at Voyager, 30, 35 years. Then we have the big distance of the rest, the 70,000 years. So we have to build a vehicle that's going to last that long, the energy to propel it that long. Um, and then now we add the human element. So who's going to be in there that long? We're talking multiple generations. Our goal is to reduce that to maybe a human lifespan of 70 years. Still, that's a long time to be in a confined space, no matter how big the space is. You can't open a window. 
you know, you can't walk away too far from people. So the other issues we have to look at are, you know, what about getting along with people? Right. You, I mean, you go from the, the technological challenges of, you know, what nuts and bolts you put together to build a ship, but you have to populate it with people who won't go, you know, stir crazy and go at each other with an axe. I guess you shouldn't send an axe along on the ship, but... Well, there's tools, you know. <laughs> We're a very creative species. Yes. Um, but, you know, it is those other issues that we have to think about. And that's what the 100-year project, 100-year Starship project is looking at, is bringing all those people together. You bring the psychologists with the engineers, the sociologists, because um, when you're designing a ship... Or looking at the capabilities, what is an environment where people are going to feel comfortable in? How are they going to communicate? What's going to be the leadership? What about um, security? Mm-hmm. You know, law, law and order. Right. When you're away, you know, when you're away from the mothership, the earth, you know, who, who's going to tell you no that you're wrong? Well, old explorers had to deal with some of the same questions. You know, the uh, explorers going off to uncharted lands had to kind of have their own rule of law on the ship, I assume. So this might be the same way. Well, it is. And it's bringing people together to think about that now. Um, Instead of waiting till a ship is built or we're ready to go and say, oh, wait a minute, who's going to go? How are we going? What are going to be kind of the rules of engagement? And it's getting people, this is a global mission. It's just not United States. It's everyone. So everyone can have a say. And we we look for partnerships around the world. We've gone to um, Brussels and engaged the European Union and getting their ideas and their perspective on what this global challenge is. What kind of response are you getting from the scientific community? Do a lot of them think it's kind of starry-eyed vision, or do they actually get excited about the idea? Uh, you get the whole gamut. Um, <laughs> a lot of people are excited. Uh, every Everyone has an opinion. You know, I talk to the the cab driver, the taxi driver. They're like, oh, we I have an idea. You know, there's nothing out there, or there is something out there, and how, how can I get involved? Because people think it's... Um, just one set of disciplines that do the astrobiologists, the physicists, the engineers. But when you really look at it, everyone wants to participate. Um, now the psychologists say, well, I want to talk about what it's, um, what this challenge entails. Um, the sociologists are like, well, what kind of culture are we going to have? You know, you have artists and storytellers because it's the stories that inspire us. You know, we look at, at our, our board and everyone is thinking about, what books and movies um, were inspirational to them. You know, we all kind of watched Star Trek a little bit. And, you know, we've read the science fiction books, and now we have the next generation reading science fiction still, the new generation of science fiction, then gaming. You know, you look at gaming and the scenarios they create for, you know, deep space and things like that. It's like, how do we get people involved? So everyone has an opinion. They want to be a part of it. So what are some of the more surprising kind of concepts that you've had in uh, kind of the discussions among the the people involved of how to do this project? Um, One of the biggest surprises was when we had our 2012 symposium. We have that every year where people can come and anyone can present an idea. And we had this one uh, professor from University of Rhode Island, Dr. Carl Asplin, bring up the idea of clothing. So we're all thinking, oh, we're going to go on a journey. Star Trek uniforms. Well, yeah, uniforms are nice, (laughs) clean, pressed. And he's like, "Um, how are you going to wash those? And how much clothing do you require as an individual? Mm. And he was saying for one person to go 30 years 
you know, train box car full of coals. That's a lot of weight, a lot of energy, a lot of water. It's like, oh, so that's a new challenge for the engineers to think of. If we take a certain amount of people, what kind of clothing? Because we're talking, there's no stop. To, there's no laundromats along the way. So maybe clothing optional. Well, <laughs> we don't know about that, but it might get to that. Who knows? Well, we'd like to have you come back on a show later and sure. maybe talk about some more of the details of the challenges that you run into, perhaps after you have the next symposium. Right. We have um, opportunities for people to engage. Um, the public symposium is in September. It's welcome. It's open to everyone, and they can provide their input. They can go on the website. We have forums for individuals to participate in the ideas and, you know, they become members, they can donate. There's all kinds of ways to get involved with the 100-Year Starship. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking with Aliris Alman about the 100-Year Starship project. You can find out more about the project at 100yss.org. Thank you very much, Alman. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by Susan Moran and was engineered by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Bong Ki Huang and Jefferson Starship. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.